John chapter 5, verses 30 through 47, on page 579 in your paper Bibles. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from men, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in, your own, in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Okay, well, we have been walking through the Gospel of John for several weeks now, and we've seen some amazing stuff recently. A couple weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' first sign, turning water into wine, and then we, if you remember, looked at the story of Nicodemus and his encounter with him. After that, we looked at the, his encounter with the woman at the well, and in each one of those occasions, the general attitude towards Jesus was a pretty accepting attitude. People seemed to be listening to him. People seemed to be interested in what he had to say. But now, as we get into chapter 5 and as we go through the rest of this book, things are going to take a turn. Uh, people's attitudes towards Jesus decidedly shift. What's happened, uh, we, we skipped a few passages here to get up to our, our current text. And what's happened in the meantime is Jesus has continued to heal. He's continued to interact with people, and he's caught the eye of some of the religious leaders, and they have begun to, to dislike him. Verse 18 that we didn't read this morning, it said, The religious leaders were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So now Jesus is getting this opposition from the other religious leaders in Jerusalem. And that shouldn't totally surprise us. I mean, anytime a new teacher comes along or anytime even one of our own peers start to succeed, it's easy to, for, for criticism to start to come out. Um, but Jesus is above the fray. He's above all that stuff. His mission is not going to be about success. His mission's not going to be about fame. It's not about gathering a giant following. His concern is, is not to wow people. But he has a mission. And Christ's mission is to bring life to the world. 
That's also the mission of this book. That's the mission of the Gospel of John. We mentioned that a few weeks ago. He tells us, this author tells us at the very end of the book, that the, the whole purpose for this book, the reason all this stuff has been written, is so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Jesus came for, to bring life to the world, even to some of these people in this crowd who are opposed to him. And so this text we're looking at today is the first time that Jesus starts to address his enemies, start to address some of his critics. And rather than debate the finer points of Old Testament law, he has a much more cutting word. The thing I want us to focus on this morning is, is this line where Jesus says, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus says to these people, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now, we're not in the same spot as these religious leaders in ancient Israel. I doubt there's anybody in this room who thinks about Jesus and thinks of him as a rival. <laughs> but I think every single one of us needs to get to the place this morning where we can be laid bare by that criticism where we can hear Jesus say that and know that he really is saying that to us as well. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. But in order for us to get there, in order for us to understand that, I think we need to ask some questions of ourselves. Maybe we need to examine our own lives a little bit this morning and, and see what we can do to, to connect to this original scene. So, so that's what I want us to do. I want us to consider three questions on our own. I want us to, to ask, where do we go for life? Where do we go for life? And then secondly, where has that gotten us? What's the result of our decisions? Where has that gotten us? And then finally, how can we change? So where do we go for life? Where has that gotten us? And how can we change? All right, first question, where do we go for life? It's kind of abstract. But uh, if we're going to understand what John's trying to tell us, we need to come up with an answer. So let's start here. Verse 39. The first half of his sentence, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Okay, so when Jesus is addressing his critics here, he's really making two points. And the first point, uh, we can't address a whole lot, but I do want to briefly touch on it. The first thing that Jesus is trying to tell these leaders is that all of the scripture, everything that they study, all of it is about him. That the point of this whole book is to, to testify to Jesus. And if you don't understand that, you all in this room, if we don't understand that, when we pick up this Bible, if we don't get that every story is pointing about Jesus, we're never going to make it through. We're never going to understand what we're reading. If you pick up Genesis chapter 3 and start reading through the curses that God is doling out on Adam and Eve, and you read that there's going to be a descendant from Eve that's going to bruise the head of the serpent, and you don't understand that's talking about Jesus. If you read Genesis 12 and see him bless Abraham, and he says, I'm going to bless all of the nations through you, if you don't realize that that's talking about Jesus. If you read the sacrificial laws, in Leviticus and the instructions for the high priest and how he's supposed to behave, but you don't understand like Hebrews tells us that Jesus 
is the ultimate high priest. And he's the ultimate sacrifice. He's the sacrifice once for all for the forgiveness of sins. He's the high priest who ever lives to intercede for us. If you read a, a psalm, like Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Only he who has clean hands and pure heart. If you don't realize it's talking about Jesus or this Old Testament passage we read this morning where it was the prophecy to David and, and, and Nathan telling him there's going to be a, uh, someone in your own line. There's going to be a king, one of your descendants whose throne would be established forever. If you don't connect that, that these things are all pointing to someone else, you're not going to get it. This book, our Bible, it exists to bear witness to Jesus. That's what it's for. Jesus is critical of these people because they've been reading that word and they've missed the point. But let me, let's be honest, that's not really our problem today. Uh, our problem is not that we are spending our lives scouring the Old Testament and missing the point. Our problem is not that we're reading the Bible too much and reading it in the wrong way. Right, we're not doing that. We're hardly reading the Bible at all, let's be honest. This is not where we go for life. It's where they went for life, but it's not where we go for life. And it's understandable, you know, if you want to try to relate to these, these Jewish leaders, um, you can get why they would study the, the word and why they would have built the culture that they built. I mean, just, uh, I want to give you an example of what they did, just so you can better understand uh, the criticism Jesus is, is giving them. Take any law for take take for example the Sabbath. Okay, uh, Exodus says, "Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to your Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or anyone else in your household." Um, so these leaders took that law and they wanted to obey that law, but. They wanted to know exactly what it meant to obey that law. And so they read that verse and they read the rest of the scriptures and they decided from that that there were really just different categories of things that, that counted as work. What does it mean to do no work? What really is work? And they came up with 39 different categories of unacceptable work, things that you cannot do on the Sabbath. And so they started to, to live by that. Their goal was they wanted to get it exactly right. They wanted to be able to do it exactly right. Why? Well, because this was their source of life. They thought, if I get the law right, everything else is going to fall into place for me. If I do this just right, then, then God is going to accept me. The world's going to be all right for me. Everything will be good. If I can get the law right, everything else will be all right. So what about you? What about us? Where do we go for life? If we were standing in that crowd and Jesus says, you refuse to come to me that you would have life, what is the thing that he would say to you? Let's just start with this week. Let's think about what we did this week when we felt anxious. Where'd you turn? When the stresses in your life this week got up to the boiling point, what was the solution that you went to? What was the thing that 
that made you think, well, if I just do this, everything's going to be all right. I thought about this some today, and I, I thought, you know, if, if Jesus stood in our congregation, he might say something like, you daydream and you obsess about making money because you think that in that you'll have life. You put unfair expectations on the people closest to you because you think that in them you'll find life. You search your Netflix queue, you scroll through Facebook because you think in the escape you'll find life. You numb yourself with, with alcohol, with, with, with drugs. You, you try to get away because you think in that you'll find life. You do whatever it takes to get ahead at work because you think in your job you'll find life. You date people who you know are no good for you because you think that in them you're going to find life. You blow up. You get angry when people criticize your ideas because you think that in them you'll have life. You feel like your life is falling apart when somebody says something negative to you because you think in their opinion, in their opinion of you, you'll find life. And here we are with that kind of criticism. I think we find ourselves all standing right next to these religious leaders. We're standing right there beside them. Jesus is, is pointing to them about the scriptures and he's pointing to us about a hundred other things and he's saying, you refuse to come to me that you would have life. You search the world, search the scriptures, you search high and low, but you refuse to come to me. So where's that guidance? What's the result of these decisions that we've made? Let's look at our text. All right, verse 43. Jesus says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do you not think that I will, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father? There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. All right. So let's start here with verse 44. He says that you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. One of the places that this gets us, one of the places that our search for life gets us is it turns us into glory fans. It turns us into people who become desperate for validation. People who become desperate for, for praise from other people. Um, in the book, Counterfeit Gods, it's a pretty good book. I don't know if you've read that before. Um, there's a quote from Madonna that kind of gets right at the heart of this. Um, she says, well, this is her own story. She says, I have an iron will. And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it, and I discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and I'm uninteresting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre, and it's always pushing me pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I 
I still have to prove that I'm somebody. And my struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Now, you might not put it that bluntly when you're describing your own life, but I think that's how we feel all the times as well. We're anxious people, are we not? We're fearful. We struggle with our own sense of worth. We're terrified about our future. We're overwhelmed with just our day-to-day challenges. We're disillusioned with life. We're discontent with life. And this is always the case. This is what happens when we are looking to the world for life. It puts us in this endless cycle. When we're looking for the world to give us what only God can give us, it puts us in this endless cycle of despair. Why can't we ever be content? Why can't we ever just feel secure and validated? Well, it's because, you guys know, in this life, everything fades. All the things in this life fade. Sometimes I wish I could tattoo that on on my hand or something to remind me that the glory in this world, it doesn't last. I mean, let me give you a, a more personal example, you know, something less than Madonna for a second. You know, what about your own life? Have you ever been praised by somebody? Maybe praised by someone that, that you looked up to in your life. Have you ever had someone look at you and say, you know, you're good at what you do. Or you're a good, a good person. Or you're smart. You're pretty. Have you ever had somebody tell you that before? How did it feel? It felt nice, right? It felt pretty good. And then what happened after that? Right? From that moment on, you never felt dumb or ugly. (laughs) You never felt inadequate again, right? No, of course not. That's not what happened. Almost immediately, you started to second guess it. You said, well, man, they're just saying that. (laughs) They're just trying to make me feel better. Instantly, what had once made you, puffed you up for 30 seconds, is all of a sudden gone. Because the glory that we give to one another, it's not enough. The glory that we give to one another is not enough to make us whole. It's not enough to fill up our emptiness. Why? Well, Jesus has an answer. He looks to these guys and he says, the answer is right in front of you. He says, there is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? He says, the answer is right here in scripture. The scripture that you pour over, the scripture that you study, the scripture that you have learned, the reason why everything in this world fades, the reason why all the glory that you gather is not enough is because of sin. The reason why we never seem to reach the life that we're looking for is because apart from Jesus, we stand condemned. That's what he means here when he tells these guys that Moses accuses them. You know, they're, they're working up their whole lives to build up this record of righteousness, to say that I'm good, to say that I've done it. But he says, if you just read the words, you would realize the only thing Moses can do is accuse you. 
The only thing you can do is point out your guilt. And it's the same for us, right? Just read through the Ten Commandments. Don't even read the Ten Commandments. Just read the first one. Have no other gods before me. Read Leviticus 19. You should be holy as the Lord your God is holy. We all feel like we're incomplete. We all feel like we're lacking because in a cosmic sense, we really are. We are lacking. The way Romans puts it, it says, we all have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. We're incomplete. Or here's another way. There's another way Christians have have put this over the years. Um, The Westminster Shorter Catechism. That's like a, a document that we use in our church. It's a series of questions and answers that can help Christians learn what the Bible teaches. And the very first question in there is, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what's the purpose of life? What is, what, is, what is our chief end? What are we made to do? And the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And the reason why nothing in this world is ever enough is because we weren't made just to get glory and pass it back and forth. We were made for bigger glory. We were made to glorify God and to enjoy his glory for all eternity. But because of our sin, we keep running after lesser things. We keep running after man's glory. We end up, well, we we end up living like addicts in search of a fix. Going from one place to another, trying to, to, to get to feel better just for a few moments. But everything fades. And we wind up right back where we started. Anxious, fearful, lying awake at night, confused. So what's the solution? How do we change that? You know, this is a question that I really... Uh, need to ask myself. You know, this is something that I, this week, as I've, I've studied this word, it's really hit home. You know, what's the solution to, to my anxiety and my fear? What do I do? Well, what Jesus tells us here is actually back in the beginning of our passage. He says, our problem is we need to believe a better testimony. We need to believe a better testimony. Now, that may seem kind of out of the blue. <laughs> like, maybe we're like, what are you talking about, a testimony? And we're going to look at this more in, in weeks to come. But there's a theme that runs through the Gospel of John, and it's kind of a trial theme. Uh, as we get closer and closer to Christ's crucifixion, especially, we're going to see this theme play out, that, that Jesus is the judge and the world's on trial, but also the world is the judge and Jesus is on trial. And so there's all this trial language that that gets passed back and forth. And so in this particular text, Jesus starts to talk about witnesses, witnesses in a courtroom. And he says that we need to have better witnesses. To put this into context, to go back into our our, our situation in this story, as he's talking to these um, leaders, as he's talking to these religious leaders, these Pharisees, The message he wants to tell them is, you know, you're believing the wrong witnesses. 
You're believing anything and everything this world has to tell you. Uh, you're believing all the lies. You're like, uh, you know, late night infomercial watchers. <laughs> you hear the claims and you just buy into everything, right? Your house is full of, of shamwows and, and ginsu knives. Your house is full of, of flobies and snuggies and all those kind of things because whatever people sell you, you buy it. You try to get glory from one another, but it never works. You try to, to find it in all these other things, but it's always not been enough. But Jesus says there's a better testimony. There's one that you should believe. And so verse 31, he says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Again, you know, courtroom language. He's saying, you got to have somebody else be a witness. He says, don't just take my word for it. I'm not just one more salesperson. Don't just believe what I'm trying to sell you. There's other people who testify about me. And then he points out these three. Verse 32, he says, you sent John, and he's born witness to the truth. So he's talking about John the Baptist. And a few weeks ago, we studied John the Baptist. Do you remember the word that John the Baptist had to say about Jesus? Remember what his testimony was? He said, this is the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. He says, don't believe, Jesus says, don't believe my word. Take John the Baptist's word for it. The Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Then verse 37, he says, And the Father, the Father who sent me, he himself has borne witness about me. God. Do you remember the story of Christ's baptism? Do you remember what happened in that moment? It says the heavens opened and a voice proclaimed, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And then Jesus says, not only those two witnesses, but the testimony I have is even greater than that. For the works, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. He says, John the Baptist will tell you about me. God himself will tell you about me. But just look at the works that I'm doing. Look at these signs that I'm doing. We've talked about this already, maybe. But John, when, he, when Jesus does miracles, he doesn't call them miracles. They are certainly miracles, but he always calls them signs. And, I, and that's a really healthy way for us to, to think about them. Uh, a pastor that, that I listen to a lot describes it like this. You know, when Jesus does miracles, they always serve a purpose. They're always serving the purpose of, of showing what he came to do on a grand scale. Right? You never see a story where, where Jesus is calls people over to him and he's like, hey guys, want to see something cool? <laughs> you know? Look at that mountain over there. Boom! You know? He never said, he never turns people into rabbits. You know, he doesn't do random stuff to impress people. His miracles are signs. And what kind of signs are they? Well, he's, he's bringing sight to the blind, right? He's cleansing people who are sick. He's restoring life to the dead. The works, the signs that Jesus brought we're pointing to his purpose. The Father has sent him to make the world whole, to restore things back to the way that they were meant to be. And the ultimate work that testifies to Christ and his worth was his work on the cross. 
Right? In that moment, Christ bore the sins of the world. He bore your sin. And he died for you. And so to us now, a few thousand years removed from this text, he says, don't just take my word for it. Look at the testimony. Look at the testimony of my works. I would, I would add, you know, look at the testimony of the church. <laughs> what he's done to redeem and restore people's lives. He says, believe a better testimony. Stop believing what the world has to tell you and, and, and believe what Christ has to say. But the gospel invitation is, is bigger than that even. It's not just that, that, that our solution is to believe more. But it's also to receive a better testimony. It's not just to believe more, but it's actually to, to receive this. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is a verse that I throw out probably every other week. It's, it says that God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. And the reason why I always bring that verse up is because it, it tells us a very core and essential truth of the gospel. The gospel is not just one more path to follow. It's not just one more philosophy to, to, to learn and, and believe. But it's actually the power of God. What that verse means is it means that Jesus doesn't just tell us how to find life. He doesn't just tell us the things that we're supposed to do, but he actually gives us life, right? He's, he makes us into the righteousness of God. By taking our sin on the cross, he makes us righteous people. He doesn't just tell you that you're beautiful, but he makes you beautiful. He doesn't just say that you can become righteous, but he makes you righteous. He doesn't just say you don't need to worry. You don't need to be anxious. You don't need to have any fears. But he conquers sin and death and gives you eternal life so you don't have to. So I think that's what we need to ask ourselves this morning. Where are you going for life right now? And how's that working out? I want to invite you this morning to turn away from those things those false sources of life. I want to invite you to, to lay down everything that fades and confess your need of him today. Jesus says, believe a better word about me and receive a better word. He says, stop searching. Stop refusing to come to me for life and just come. Come to me. Come in repentance. Come in faith. As he says in, in Matthew, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You'll find the glory that you seek. You'll find the life that you're looking for. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, as you tell these, these people who stand far from you, uh, just how misguided they are in searching the scriptures for life, 
I, I, I feel my own conviction because I know there's so many places I've gone to find life other than you. Lord, I want to pray for, for the people here in this room. I know that we all share this same weakness, um, that we are, are slow to believe and slow to receive your gospel. But I pray, Father, that we would hear declared over us as we come to this table, uh, which you tell us in Romans, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, that you have, have promised us your eternal life and your inheritance, and we will have it. And so I pray, God, that we could come to this table and that we could lay our burdens down and we could receive the gift of your grace. And Lord, I pray also for anybody here this morning who may not know you. Um, Lord, I pray that you would call them for the first time to do this. Lord, that you would open their eyes to see the things that they're living for that can't bring life and that you would give them life in your soul. We pray. Amen.